What's the one thing apart from your phone that you couldn't travel without? Beard trim. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 110 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who can't travel without a beard trimmer. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash tour and yes a review to get us underway today the best cycling podcast by Gerconier. Damien is offering the cyclist a interesting entertaining and well documented podcast if you are like me and can't get enough knowledge to improve your performance have a listen to all those great podcasts and incorporate what you've learned in your training you will see benefits rapidly great job Damien great job Gerconier. thank you very much for taking the time out to write that review i really do appreciate it and if you listening like the show i would love a review on itunes or stitcher because five stars makes me hear the stars they sing at night calling our dreams to them thank you very much now the performance probe this week and probe number one performance using a 20 kilometer time trial after caffeine ingestion super important for cyclists to know this stuff is caffeine going to make a difference now the objective of this study was to analyze the effect of caffeine ingestion on the performance and physiological variables associated with fatigue in a 20 kilometer time trial in a double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover study, 13 male cyclists that were at local club level, not state or international level, were randomized into two groups and received caffeine capsules of 6 milligrams per kilogram or a placebo 60 minutes before performing 20-kilometer time trials. The distance, speed, RPM, rating of perceived exertion, EMG of the quadricep muscles and heart rate were continuously measured during the tests. In addition, the Brums questionnaire, which is a brief measure of mood states, was applied before and after the tests. So what were the results? Significant interactions were found in power and speed which were significantly higher at the end of the test in the final two kilometers after the caffeine condition. The time taken to complete the test was similar in both conditions and no significant differences between caffeine and placebo conditions were identified for speed, power, RPM, RPE, EMG, heart rate and BRUMS. That's everything. So the conclusion, the results suggest that caffeine intake 60 minutes before 20-kilometer time trials has no effect on the performance or physiological response of cyclists. So this is super interesting. The study does not encourage any caffeine fiends to have their second or third cup before they hit the road and do a 20-kilometer time trial. But when was the last time that you did a 20-kilometer time trial? Exactly. That's what I thought, not recently. So this study, for me, it needs to be expanded into other cycling racing scenarios, 
distances, etc., to really give a complete picture of the effects of caffeine at this level of performance. Probe number two, a video on the story of Team Garmin Sharp's 2013 Stage 9 Tour de France win. And the video interviews everybody that was involved with this win. And as a bit of background before you check out the vid, here's something to get you really, really interested because... The win itself was from a breakaway. Dan Martin jumped clear of the yellow jersey group on the final climb. There was a climb and a descent before the finish, and it may have looked like it was a spur-of-the-moment attack, but it was actually planned weeks in advance, and the whole team risked their positions to put Dan Martin in the right place to get there. But that is not the cool bit. Because everything from tactics down to the exact gap in seconds that Martin would need from the top of the climb to get to the finish was planned. Which, by the way, was 43 seconds. And when they hit the summit, they had exactly 43 seconds between the small breakaway group of two riders and the peloton. So what does this mean? It means big data has entered pro cycling and it's entered via the hands of a computational science wizard. The planning, direction, and real-time analysis came from Robbie Ketchell, Garmin Sharp's director of sports science. You would have heard me talk about him before. I'm a bit of a fanboy of his work. And during the race, he monitored the action from the US, where he had laid out weeks of planning beforehand in a sophisticated custom software application created just for this role, and of course, codenamed platypus. It's a data mining tool that does everything from model weather conditions and analyze riders' previous performances to monitor in real time and feed information to the team via a mobile app in advance, even of the official race radio communications. So the planning for this stage started long before that, and you'll see Vorders in the video talk about wanting Ketchell to do a analysis of every stage that has ever been in the tour because they wanted to win from a breakaway. So what Ketchell did was write this program that took into consideration historical tour data and it focused on factors like terrain and weather. And what they discovered was stage nine had the highest statistical probability of a successful break. So they were going to double down and put all of the team's effort behind stage nine. Another part of Platypus is a database which contains information on every single rider in the race that it's monitoring. So when a rider gets into a break, Platypus loads them up on an iPad in the DS's car and you can click on the stats to see the breaks that that rider's been in, how often they have succeeded and all other types of historical data. The directors themselves have it in the car so they can make real-time decisions on what to do next. The final role of Platypus is that it mines real-time information of the race from influential media sources and social networks like Twitter. So in the 2013 Giro d'Italia, Ketchell says he was able to communicate to the DS that Wigo had been dropped minutes before the news came over race radio. Generally, Twitter, to me, isn't seen as a reliable source of information, even though there's a lot of information, but apparently this model filters all of the garbage out and only comes up with the stuff that is proved to be so. So it's based on as much fact as possible, and this moment 
where Wigo was predicted three minutes ahead of the race radio was the moment, I think, that Team Garmin hit a tipping point in using this technology. Of course, from the top, Vorders seems like he's really open to all types of new technologies and innovation. But to convince old dogs, like the DS and some of the riders and things, I'm sure that this moment was a moment that convinced them that, yes, we can use this idea and big data and modeling for our advantage. So I think that was where momentum might have been gained, where they were able to then double down in the tour and everybody was able to get behind them. And you see in the video that Vorders talks about, planting the seed in all of the riders so they believed they were the ones that actually thought of this idea and then the momentum kept going and they all sacrificed their own personal rides for the win of stage nine and for the win for Garmin. So this video and all of this information is a fascinating look into the future of pro cycling because we aren't going to be able to avoid the big data revolution that's coming. It really will depend on what smart computer scientists choose pro cycling to target next because I know a lot of this stuff is focused on the big US team sports and I'm sure some of that will then trickle down into pro cycling. I'm excited about it. I don't know where you stand on it and whether you think it's going to kill the romance, but I definitely think it just adds another dimension to pro cycling. All right, the nuts and bolts preparing for racing tours it's definitely a natural progression that as you start to get serious about bike racing you'll start at single day races then you'll go to two day races then you may do two and a half or three day races and then eventually if you keep going and you're hungry to test yourself you'll get to a longer stage race or at least you'll be in a position where a team wants you to carry biddens in a longer stage race and you'll be forced to do one. But it's the challenge of a longer stage race that is the most exciting part. It requires more fitness, more stamina, more ability to recover day to day, more mental preparation because you're stretching yourself further than you've ever stretched yourself before. And when it comes to this progression, there are a lot of questions around what are the physical talents that are needed to do these longer stage races, how are they developed, how can you include them for your own events. But the main question I get is, am I training hard enough for a demanding stage race? And to help answer this question, I asked Scott Bradburn onto the show. Scott rides with the Australian NRS team, Celebrations Racing, supported by VW and Bikebug. Scott is fascinating for a couple of reasons. This is the first. Yeah, I've done nothing at all, like not a pedal stroke for 10 years, which was interesting coming back. And this is the second. I don't have a cadence meter. I don't have a power meter. I don't wear a a heart rate monitor. It's just feel, I guess. We'll get to his approach to training and building towards big stage races, which, by the way, we are in Oz. It is the second half of the 2014 season. So the biggest, longest, and I dare say most prestigious NRS race, the Tour of Tasmania, is coming up. So I was interested in talking about the preparation for the Tour of Tasmania and a couple of events before and after. But first, you would have heard Scott mentioning that he is coming back. Back from what? 
Well, Scott is an accomplished mountain biker representing Australia in the booming 90s. He also dabbled on the road as well in such races as the Commonwealth Bank Classic. And if you do know this race, you know back in the day it was a big deal. For me, I never raced it. But it was where I saw Jan Ulrich wearing the amateur world rainbow jersey up close in my hometown which definitely inspired me to take my riding more seriously and the commonwealth bank classic i would say was one of the biggest australian races back in the day scott rode it and did very well he had some really solid results in that race and it shows that he kind of didn't come out of nowhere but he still did because he spent 10 years in the wilderness fishing and He's now two seasons back and he's getting top fives in state hill climbs and road races. So I started by asking him how he made his way back into the peloton. So I dicked around like I did in 2010. I did maybe three months of riding, but then just stopped again for a year. And then probably did another three months in 2011, but then stopped and then um, didn't really ride 2012 at all. So I was sort of fair weather rider in, in summer. Yep. But, yeah, having another year off, I was, yeah, I was just like starting from scratch and then I just had a really good summer of training and actually kicked on with it. Um, so I did Blaney to Bathurst. Yep, yep which is one of the big ones now. And I finished in the top 10 there and six in the state hill climb. So that encouraged me to train a little bit more. And then, yeah, just sort of give a few NRS races a crack to see what level they were at. And they were a completely different level, like much higher. Um, but I saw enough to think that I could do it. So just came back and had a big summer. And, yeah, it's been good. That first few months or that first six months to 12 months is, is pretty rough because your head is in a totally different place. Yeah. Yeah, and you think you can come back and smash it, but you've got nothing. Yeah. Or you can for like 500 metres. Yeah. <laughs> I found I came back and did my first club race in B grade and I was just like, yeah, I'll attack now. And then for like 400 metres, I was like, yeah, I've got this. <laughs> and I was like, boom. <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay. Straight out the hoop, yeah. <laughs> I need to work. So I think, yeah, I reckon it's um, – because I've tried to think about, oh, how have I been able to come back pretty quick? So I, th- I still think it's quick because it took me – when I started riding the first time, it took me like many, many years before I could ride at the level I'm at now. Yeah. And I think it's knowledge about how to train as well as some of that muscle memory that people talk about. What I did in that first proper year back, so last year – I actually didn't do much top end. I just thought I was having a bit more of a long-term look at it. And I thought I'll do, I'll ride as much as I can and do kilometers and sort of just try to build up my muscles and the supporting structures and get some strength back that won't really hurt that other system and sort of save that to this year. So I sort of kept that in my back pocket. Mm. I'm just, I don't know, like maybe it's just, had nothing to do with it but um I, I took a real slow approach to it and in sydney like i see all the bunches ride too fast for me yeah. i just go right riding by myself they're always smashing themselves 
And yeah, you got to play the long game to to really jump that level. And I had some really good advice from my first good coach, which is John Groom. And because I was young when he took me on, like I always wanted to do more. I wanted to do what everyone else was doing. And he was always like, you've got to earn the right to train like that. Yeah. And it was really step by step by step. If you want to do a thousand kilometers, well, you're going to do 900. If you want to do 900, you got to do 800. And yeah, I think just having that in my head, that's a good philosophy to have. Now that we have an idea of how Scott got back into the action and now he's doing really well, I asked him about his preparation leading up to the Tour of Tassie. We do get into some specifics, but there's a lot that you can also get from this. Well, summer, I don't, summer I just ride my bike as, as much as I can. Little gears, just building up the Ks. And I don't even think about an effort or a, or a race. And then um, sort of get that under my belt and then do a couple of months where I just do bigger gears but still not at really high heart rate. And, and only after that do I really then start to do some, some proper um, efforts. So it's a, long, it's a long game and not many people have the patience for it. How about through the year? Do you plan for races and things? Um, what I'm doing now is probably a bit different to before, um, especially with the break in the NRS in winter, is to try to have two peaks, yep. which is a bit different to how I'd, I used to train where I was sort of, you get ready for a season that might be like five months and you just then race for five months and recover as best you can between races. Whereas this time I really wanted to be going well in May. So went through the, you know, base, strength, and then some um, higher-end stuff, um, and then really started racing through April and with the goal of peaking in May for the two tours, Battle on the Border and Toowoomba. And that, my progression was perfect, so I was really starting to, I went well at a state level um, in April, so this year I got second in the hill climb instead of sixth the year before and got fifth in Bathurst instead of eighth and every other race seemed to be top five. And then I just had a week where I was actually just, I could tell I just stepped up a level in my training and then I got sick <laughs> um, and I wasn't able to do bath, um, battle or Toowoomba, uh, which was a real shame. So that was then sort of, I just called that as my break and got over that. So that was three months, three weeks off the bike and then just started up another base and went through it all again. And now I'm probably at that point that I was just before I got sick. So sort of doing the same numbers, doing the same times on, on hills and feeling like I'm about to break through to hopefully a, a new level. When you came back and you were doing base miles and things, what type yep. of um, hours or kilometers were you doing? Yeah, I um, I did. I sort of started about three to four hundred. I'd already had a pretty good base behind me from earlier in the year, so I just jumped to three to four hundred and then built that up to um, a couple of weeks at nine hundred, which was a week and a half off work to achieve that. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, um, but even getting to that right. So before that, there was sixes and sevens and eights. To do that whilst working was very challenging. A yep. um, lot of time in the dark before work and 
after work in the dark doing laps around Centennial, but just doing what you need to do. And then, yeah, and then I usually have uh, an easy week just to let it all um, soak in and then uh, less kilometres but start to do some bigger gears and I guess more quality training rather than quantity. So then once you've laid down the foundation and you've moved into strength, what specificity do you work on? Do you specifically go after your strengths or your weaknesses? How do you approach that? So for a couple of weeks I just... I'm actually doing a lot of the same rides. So I just I, I drop a gear, and then the next week I drop another gear um, up up the hills, and I I just do that for like probably around six to eight weeks, and I just find I can just keep dropping the gears and it's fine, um, and then just generally just roll around in a slightly bigger gear, and that seems to kind of condition me without like fucking me like I, I still come out of that feeling fairly fresh because I haven't done it at a high heart rate but I don't like I don't have a cadence meter I don't have a power meter I don't wear a, a heart rate monitor it's just feel I guess and then after that again I let it, that soak in for for probably a week so just an easier week and then I start to do some real specific stuff at a turbo studio that's in Sydney mm-hmm. where it's monitored like it's got it's got your watts, it tells you your cadence, and you, I'm, I'm kind of like doing three 10-minute blocks at maybe 55, 60 revs and um, probably built for the 3 by 10, you know, like 320 watt, 330 watt, 340 watt at those sort of revs. And then um, do, do a couple of weeks or maybe three or four weeks of that. Normally by the end you find you can just do more watts for the same effort. And that seems to get me pretty strong and then um, really try to get the speed in after that. So real higher revs, um, higher higher watts work on the turbo and starting to bring in some club racing and state racing to, to get me going. And you rode the Tour of Tasmania for the first time last year, 2013, is that right? Yep. Was the preparation the same leading into that? No, it was shocking. <laughs> Um, first of all, I wasn't as fit last year. And then in July, I had to go to India for work. Um, so I just had, uh, I, ha- I had nearly six weeks off and I didn't think I was going to get a ride for Tasmania. And then I got a call in August that I could do it with this team downer. And so I had seven and a half weeks, I think, to get ready. So you can imagine what that was like. I, I was just cutting corners and I, I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I just wanted to take the opportunity. So I sort of like to give you some idea. Right now I'm 66 kilo. Um, I went there at 72 kilo and wouldn't have been doing anything like the watts that I'm doing now for a threshold. So I suffered every day. But you got through it and you actually finished it, right? Yeah, which was an achievement. Um, a lot of guys didn't. Um, and there was, you know, there was one day in particular where I got dropped early, found two other guys that didn't want to pull the pin and we basically had to do a 90K time trial and we made the time cut by 30 seconds. Whoa. So that was just hell. But, um, yeah, I felt 
yeah, a real sense of achievement to get through it in the end, but also vowed that I'll never do that to myself again. So it seems like that your preparation is really working going into this year's Tour of Tasmania. Yeah, I'm, I think, yeah, uh, I, I couldn't, like with the time that I have, I don't, I don't know what more I, I could do to be ready for it this year. I think the States on Sunday was my yardstick of where I'm at and I'm not quite climbing with like the, the very top guys, but I'm just off. Um, so Canberra Tour would be interesting because there's a hilltop finish, which would be a good indication. And then Tour of Tassie this year, the first stage is a 17K time trial to the top of Mount Wellington um, individual. So that, that'll really shape the GC. So, yeah, just preparing for that. So let's talk about longer stage races for a moment because what starts to fall apart after the three days that is a standard kind of race? Where did you start to notice the real difference other than fatigue? But what was going on in the four, five, and you know six days of a, of a stage race? So Tassie or just generally? Tassie or, or anywhere else that you've done a longer one as well. When I was younger, the Commonwealth Bank Classic was around, so that was another one that was at that eight or nine day mark. And that was my first longer tour. So, yeah, I, I do recall it three to four days just being absolutely fucked <laughs> um, and peeling myself out of bed every morning and not thinking I would get through. But I guess you start to realise everyone else is feeling the same. Um, and it was probably the same at, at Tasmania. Just, But then it didn't really seem to get worse. So you sort of feel that real heavy fatigue, but um, I, I've, and I probably even found the last stage of Tassie is where I felt the best of any stage. Maybe it starts to, I don't know what happens, but um, maybe your body just adapts and you, and you get used to it. But yeah, I definitely wasn't getting worse after that third day. So the lessons that you learned from last year, obviously you were underprepared going into it and you really suffered. Um, yeah. But it sounds like you came out of that mentally stronger, at least being able to stick it out when it, there were some pretty hard days and some shocking weather down there last year as well. Yeah. So what will you specifically take from last year and apply to this year's race? Um, a few little things. So keeping warm. Um, so there was a lot of um, two or three stages finished with snow. So... So a couple of days I didn't have the clothes. Um, a couple of the stages the team actually organised some hot soup and that type of thing at the end, and that really was awesome. So this year with the team, I'm just going to make sure we've got all that prepared. Um, some of the other little tips and lessons I learnt actually was starting at the front was more important than a good warm-up. Mm-hmm. So... You, you kind of weigh it up before the start. Do you go out and get a good warm-up but probably miss the call-up and the chance to s- sit on the second, third line? Um, and just with the speed from the gun, um, just being able to start up the front was so much more beneficial than a warm-up, I found. Um, and because the neutral was often uh, 3, 4, 5K, that could get you fairly warmed up anyway. So that was a little tip, especially for the crit. Um, beyond that, yeah, it's just normal things. Positioning in the bunch, 
um, not using any energy that you don't need to, and really not giving up if you do get dropped, you know, really hanging on and, and trying as hard as you can until that last car goes past because if you can latch onto that convoy, um, it's a pretty swift uh, ride back on. Whereas if you miss it, you're in, you know, it's very, very difficult to get back. So you talk about conserving energy during the race. Yep. Everyone in the race is probably riding in a team and for somebody, so it's not always possible that you can just hide and and avoid yep. doing some working at some point. But yep. how do you specifically try and conserve your energy during the actual stages? Um, well, last year in the team I was in, it was very difficult. It wasn't like I was a protected rider. Um, this year, probably Josh and I from my team will be the two best and so we'll probably both get designated a rider to ride in front of us. Um, and then a couple of the other guys will be responsible for um, feeding. Um, so that'll be one big difference. Whereas before I do go back to the cars by myself, quite often ride in front and help our climbers get to the front um, before the climb, which is work for these days 10 to 15k before the climb is when it really it already starts to ramp up and everyone's wanting to be at the front so i did do a, a ton of work last year that i just won't have to do this year um which would be good but otherwise you know it's just little little tricks that you learn with time in terms of how to hold your position in the bunch where the best place is to be and taking the opportunity to move up when the pace isn't on um, as opposed to when it's lined out and you've got to go out into the wind. So we're going to see you in the top 10 this year? <laughs> I, um, if, I, if I don't get sick between now and then, um, I think I can do top 20. And But top, top 10 would be, I'd be pretty happy with that. I, I don't think I'm quite there. But I think, look out for Josh Berry. I think he will be there from our team. Um, and if he is, and if he is early, probably our tactics will change and I'll switch from riding for my own GC and um, doing everything to help Josh. So let's talk about after the tour then. Are you wrapping up your season with Melbourne to Warrnambool and Grafton in Varel? Uh, definitely Grafton and Melbourne, it's only a week after Tassie and you know it's another flight and another race away from home. So I'm only going to do that if I'm bombing off the back of Tassie and, you know, it'd be stupid not to use the form if I've got it. But I'd say that's probably not at this stage. So then what, you're, what is your training going to be in between Tassie and, and Grafton then? Yeah, I'll have a little probably half week, take it easy on myself. Um, and then for the Grafton, it'll be long rides on the weekend and I'm going to hook up some motor pacing um, midweek just with the speed because those, you know, you've got it's a 230k race. There's one really long climb in it, but the rest of it is pretty open, fast racing. And if you're going to be up there, um, you're going to be needing to turn and be comfortable um, turning at speed. So I'll be working on that. So how about you and your stage racing? What prep do you need? Well, here's my advice. I would definitely start with volume. Volume is the first thing. You did hear that Scott would get up to 900 kilometers in a week. That is big deal K's, big deal base building. So you would have to have a really, really solid base. And that's all about 
volume. If you've never ridden two days next to each other, ride two days, and then later on ride three days, and then four days. It's very similar to what Vorders got Phil Guyman to do when he came on board with Garmin and the Tour de Phil, which was 300 watts of work per day for three weeks. Just building that volume, that capacity to handle that volume and to recover from it and do it the next day. That's what you need initially. You have to ignore the fact that the first time you start doing this volume, you're not going to be hitting specific numbers when it comes to training. You'll go out, you'll try and do sprinting, you'll try and do VO2 max, but you won't get those numbers. Ignore that, and I know that goes against all principles about being fresh, hitting numbers, training it, being in the zone, whatever. Ignore it. It's all about volume. Once you have that volume, then you can start to up the intensity, and that may not be in the first year. It's all about survival, learning in the first year. The second year, maybe you can add some intensity to that. The third year, maybe you can add some more intensity to that. So outside of volume, it's recovery. It's learning what works for you. It's understanding how you can best recover after a ride so you can back up the next day. And like I said, not so that you can always do that intensity, but at least you can get through the ride. The interesting thing about stage racing, it's not always about the person that has the highest FTP that's going to win. Because if your recovery is better, then you're going to do better once you get towards the end of a stage race. And the best thing about a stage race is every stage counts. So all it takes is one bad day for a top rider to be left out. But if you can get really good at recovery, the Tour de France is a game of recovery. Yes, Froome is a monster when it comes to the power he puts out on climbs but definitely he is very good at recovering and that's one of the main reasons he is a killer Tour de France rider. So I'm just going to wrap up by saying here that stage racing is the ultimate type of racing in cycling. It's the way that you really test your limits physically, mentally. It will push you harder than you've ever been pushed before but it will be more rewarding than any ride you've ever done before. So Learn the basics, get that base down, and then you can focus on the specific areas of a stage race, the time trial, the criteriums or whatever, but get that base down and then you can build on that. Take lessons from Scott. He had great advice in there. I would go back and listen again so you don't miss anything and definitely get out there and learn what you are capable of. Alrighty, the tech hacks and products section, and this week it's a tech product. Well, not really. It's an upgrade to Strava. They've got one little upgrade, which I think is a game changer when it comes to training analysis. It's not that big, but I think the importance of it and the way that you can actually apply this to your cycling will really add a lot of value to a lot of riders. What is it? It's comparing your effort to other riders in a segment where you can actually check the performance stats minute by minute from yourself and others that are riding the segment. So you're making a comparison. Comparing efforts with yourself is one of the best ways to figure out how you are going and measuring progress over time. But doing it with other riders I think is next level because there's no way you're going to normally get another rider's file and be able to compare it in the way that Strava allows you to do this. So you're able to check live speed, heart rate, power, time gaps and position 
against everybody that rode. With a free account, you get two riders. With a premium account, you get five riders. You can hit play and watch it in real time, or you can just scroll back and forth and really narrow down to where you don't have the fitness or where you lost contact with the best rider and really figure out on that segment where you can make up time so you can do better. I think this has great implications for training, specifically in a segment that you want to do better, but also understanding where the good riders are making time on certain climbs or segments and then figuring out how you can do that yourself. So all you need to do is go to a segment page and you'll see on the right-hand side a button for compare segments and that's it. And definitely I will be using this to hone in on some of my athletes and figure out exactly what's going wrong in certain sections, but also to figure out what's going right so we can double down and get more Strava KOMs because that's what it's all about. Now, the quote from the top of the show, of course, it's Wigo, a man after my own heart and hairy face. Wigo has had an interesting year because he's been snubbed from all the Grand Tours. He is going to ride the Tour of Britain and he did win Cali. So he has had a pretty solid year, except for the Grand Tour issue. And it'll be interesting to see how he goes forward, because he has announced he wants to ride the pursuit at the 2016 Olympics. And he has made an appearance on the track this year in the team pursuit at the Commonwealth Games. It will be interesting to follow him along and see if he can win at the 2016 Games. But I've got to tell you, The most interesting bit that I got from the ride at the Commonwealth Games was that he was wearing short socks. And that's it this week. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash tour to find any links in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on my coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 